this is Bob Stromberg. I am here with Ryan on the World of Speakers podcast. Had a wonderful conversation about mastering the craft of creativity, about becoming a speaker, about creating a career, and how to keep it going for the long run. Hope you can listen. Thanks so much. Welcome to the World of Speakers podcast, brought to you by Speaker Hub. In each episode, we interview a professional speaker and reveal their very best tips and tricks. You'll learn to improve your presentation skills, keep your audience engaged, and learn how to grow your business to get more gigs and make more money. Here's your host, Ryan Foland. All right, everybody, we are back, and today we're going to have fun. That's because we're dealing with Bob Stromberg, who's not only a comedian, but a speaker, and more importantly, the master of creativity. Bob, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. Excellent. The master of creativity. Now, do you think that that's more powerful or is the comedian aspect of what you do more powerful? Well, creativity has is what has powered everything that I've done through all of these years. I've been I'm 65 years old now and I've been a a, a full-time performer for 43 years. So, that's a, that's a long long time and it's gone through many phases and and I've had to kind of reinvent myself several times during that career in order to keep doing what I love doing. But yeah, creativity has been what's made that happen. So yeah, that's probably the most, that's the foundation of of everything. So I don't make my money teaching about creativity. I don't make my livelihood that way. I make my livelihood doing comedy, but it's, it's creativity that's has made that possible. And then technically the speaking part is something that happens whether you're doing comedy or whether you're teaching creativity. It's kind of that all-encompassing aspect that sort of weaves it all together. Oh, absolutely. You're absolutely right about that. Yep. Well, let's learn a little bit more about this, you know, four decades of, I like you said, full performance, right? Like full time, full time. So tell us about how this started. Did you you wake up as a kid and you're like, Hey, when I grow up, I want to be a comedian. Was it that clear for you? It was almost that clear. Um, the story that I tell when I was uh, eight years old, I, I sat in a music class in my elementary school classroom, third grade, and my teacher, Miss Nagel, came in. And Miss Nagel was a very, very large woman, which was funny to us anyway. But then she sat at the piano on a tiny stool, <laughs> which I, I will not get to ever get that image out of my head. We, and we all looked at each other and smiled and, and laughed uh, quietly every time she came into the room. And one day she came in and she said, we're going to learn a new song today. And she said, it's number 14. And I remember that, Ryan. It was number 14. I can see a picture, a thin picture at the top of the page, uh, an Amish looking fellow, a uh, little watercolor of him walking through a late summer meadow and storm clouds in the back and a little a river in the in the foreground. And uh, she began playing the song, Oh, Shenandoah. Do you know that song? I mean, no, uh, step me through it. I mean, I can do some beatboxing, but. <laughs> well, I bet you've heard it. It goes, Oh, Shenandoah, I long to see you. Gone away, you rolling river. Oh, Shenandoah, I long to see you. Away, I'm gone away across the wide Missouri. I'm in Pennsylvania. I'm nowhere near the Missouri. I don't know what <laughs> Shenandoah means. But, right. but the melody, and, and honestly, you can hardly imagine how badly that must have sounded with 30 kids who had never sung before. Absolutely. And she always encouraged us. We had to sing loud, whether we could sing or not. And so it, it had to have sounded terrible with that off-key piano, and she was just pounding on it. But I, I burst into tears, and my classmates were looking at me, and then Miss Nagel, she stopped, and she came back and asked me what was wrong. But- I couldn't explain why I was crying. And, and it's only in retrospect, I realize this. I was overwhelmed by the beauty 
of art. I was overwhelmed by that melody. It just went right to my heart. I mean, I still, to this day, really can't explain it, but that's what it was. And from that moment on, it's like, I I want to experience that again. Not meaning I want to cry in front of my friends again. I certainly didn't want to do that. Sure. Or seeing uh, you with a bunch of 30 kids in in an off-tone pitch to uh, an instructor who's, you know. Exactly. But I wanted to experience that kind of beauty again. And I remember another time experiencing something very similar to that, where I was just blown away sitting with my dad on a Sunday night watching the Ed Sullivan show and Richard Pryor was on. And of course, this was in his Ed Sullivan day. So he it was clean. It was family comedy. And I remember okay. my dad and I laughing so hard together. And I remembered, again, that overwhelming feeling of this is so great. And I think it was right in there somewhere that I decided I want to be a performer. I'd never heard a speaker in my life, you know, as a junior hire, I never heard a speaker, but I did know something about folk music. I was listening to that and early rock and roll. I was listening to that. Oh, I'd like to be able to do that. And then watching the comics on Ed Sullivan, that's the only place you could see him around the daytime talk shows after school, watching these guys and going, oh man, to be able to make people laugh like that. And I always could make my, my parents laugh. They, I always could delight them and my friends. I always, I would have been the class clown for certain. But my dad was the principal, so that was an impossibility for me. I could not, I could not <laughs> realize that dream, but that's what I wanted to do. I remember watching the class clown in my class who was quite good, but I remember thinking, oh, I could do better. I'm better than that. But I couldn't do it. I had to wait till after I got out of high school. And then when I went, went into college, I just I wanted to be a performer. I knew it then for sure. And I didn't know exactly what it was. Is it music? Is it comedy? What is it going to be? Is it theater? I wasn't sure, but I want to be a performer. And so I began experimenting with all kinds of, of, I sang in coffee houses and I auditioned for plays and I, and I tried storytelling really is what it was at that time. Telling, telling, I would tell funny stories in between songs that I had written. And, and at one point I realized, oh, people love the stories more than they love the songs. And actually one time I showed up at a gig, this was in my twenties and my guitar didn't show up. And uh, I had nothing. I hadn't. So what am I going to do? And I stood in front of these people and I can't sing a cappella. So I just took the stories that I'd been telling between songs and strung them together. And people loved it and said, hey, can we have you back next year? And that's when the lights started to go on that I could probably do this. I was 23 or 24, married, starting a family. And I thought, well, I'm going to give this three years and see if I can, is it possible to make a living? I, I went around to schools knocking on doors saying, please, could you, you know, could I come and do a, a program for you? Well, do you have any materials? Well, I'd written. I'd, back in those days, marketing consisted, honestly, it consisted of a trifold brochure and a calling card. I mean, that and a telephone somewhere. That was it. There was no other you know, it was just so low tech. No QR codes or uh... <laughs> oh, nothing, nothing, and some direct mailing. I guess we used to do some of that. But I remember, I, I after three weeks of going around to schools, getting nobody was. They didn't want me because they didn't know what I did, and they'd never heard of me before. And I'm trying to tell them that you know, I your kids would love this, and it would be really positive, and it'll be fun and funny, and so on. Well, nobody wanted me. And then I walked into a middle school. Uh, I was living in Massachusetts at the time on the East Coast. And I walked into a middle school at the end of the day as well, one more try. And um, I told the secretary what I, who I was and what I was doing. And I heard the, the principal say, send him in here. And <laughs> I went in and he said, how much do you charge? And I, I think I said $150. 
And he said, uh, that's for two, right? This was would have been in 1977. He said, that's for two performances, right? I said, yeah, fine. It's for two. <laughs> so he said, I need you tomorrow. Well, obviously something had fallen through and I just right. happened to walk in on the right day. And I did this performance for the kids. I spoke, I'd been studying mime for a while. So I never was a, a silent white face mime, but I, I learned a lot of mime techniques and body movement kind of stuff. And added that into my comedy. And it was, I mean, very crude, very early on. It was just, uh, there's nothing of it that remains in what I do all these years later. But I did this for the kids and they loved it. And the teachers loved it. And afterwards he said, how many, um, do you have any more of those brochures? And I said, yeah, I have some more. He said, do you have them with you? I said, yeah, I, I said, I have about a thousand in my trunk thinking he wanted four or five. He said, I want them all. And I didn't want to give him my brochures. They probably cost me two, three hundred bucks, you know. (laughs) And uh, he said, I am the president of the New England Principals Association. And we have our meeting this week. Every principal in New England is going to be there. And I want to give everybody a brochure and tell them what you did. And so I went out and brought in several boxes of brochures and hand and he did it. Wow. And and my career just it took off, which is all of this, as I'm telling you this, it it truly is an indication that there's no one way to do what we do in terms of marketing and in terms of reaching some sort of level of success. There is no one way. Nobody could recreate what I did. It was totally unique to me. And I would suggest that as speakers who are looking to get into a field, it'll be totally unique to them too. And you can try everything. You can try, you know, you can try podcasting, you try blogging, you can try um, all the types of marketing techniques, but it will end up being something special and something unique to you. Well, one thing that I'm, I'm hearing throughout the, you know, your story is this taking the opportunity that's sort of thrown upon you, right? Somebody, your guitar player doesn't show up and now out of necessity, you just are there and you kind of have to wing it to the extent that all of a sudden you sort of pull together what you have. You are in the principal's office and you are a victim of the opportunity, but you just jump on it. And then before you leave, another opportunity jumps in your door and you're like, well, and you throw something at it. So it sounds like this unique you know, unique to each person. There's no magic pill or magic formula. But the thing I'm hearing is that because you kept pounding the streets and kept knocking on the door, you know, the gold was always three feet further and you just didn't stop digging. Is that what I'm hearing? Well, yes, you are. And and there are times when you just, when you go, well, what next? I feel like I've gotten to the end of the road, but you just keep, you keep working. You keep well, let's try this. Let's try this. Let's, and you keep your eyes open. You can't sit and wait for the phone to ring. It just, it won't work or or seldom will it work. (laughs) So yeah, I think you heard me exactly right. The only thing you didn't hear right was it, it wasn't my guitar player who didn't show up. It was my guitar. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Your actual guitar. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Didn't come off a plane. So yeah. Oh, okay. That's actually uh, more so your fault then. And it's, you can't blame anybody else. (laughs) No, except the airlines, which I did, of course, but yeah. Well, speaking of which, as a fun tactic, it's always fun to blame someone else and then you forgive them later and then everybody's happy because you feel good when they feel bad and then you forgive them and then you feel good. And, you know, (laughs) I guess guess you're right about that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So an interesting sort of path. Now, it sounds like it started off as a performer. It turned into a comedian. At what point did it make the transition to where you are a speaker? At what point did you at least self-identify as a speaker? 
I actually uh, identified as a speaker about 20 years ago and had uh, oh seven or eight years of uh, speaking all the time. I mean, several times a week for years. And then I had an opportunity that came along. I, I was, uh, and by the way, when I speak, because it's the nature of what I do, it's just the, the style of what I do. I it, it was always had a, a high level of comedy to it because that's what I had worked hard to do. And I use that in my speaking through the illustrations and through the stories that I told, because I basically am a comedic storyteller. That's the style of my comedy. Okay. So I was able to use that illustratively in my, my speaking and my talks. But then I had an opportunity, sat down for breakfast with two of my comic friends. We, my, my wife and my kids and I had moved from Chicago to Minneapolis and I had been asked to tell some stories on a live radio show, which I did. Got to meet the musical director there. He said, hey, do you want to have breakfast? I said, well, I'm actually having breakfast with another comic tomorrow morning. Why don't you join us? And so the three of us sat down at, for breakfast at a restaurant. And somebody said, you know, why don't we write a play? And I said, I know it was me who said, well, we better book it first because we're all three of us are so busy. We will never we'll never write it if we don't book it, we don't have a deadline that we're pushed up against. So one of my friends said, well, I'm, I can, I can get a book. So he called around and, and I think he called a, a church and he said, you want to have a family night at your church and, and uh, we'll come and do a program for you. And, and this young pastor said, well, sure, I could do that. Well, 600 people showed up uh, a month later. And so we had spent one month, just what can we do? What, and we decided to take pieces of our own acts and put them together and create a story and see if we could create some characters and so on. It turned into a play called Triple Espresso, a highly caffeinated comedy, which went on to sell uh, 4 million tickets. And in fact, it's still going uh, in Minnesota. I'll be doing it tonight. It, it ran seven shows a week, a year round for 13 years in Minnesota, and it was 11 years in San Diego, and it's been in 70 cities, I think. And so that took off and kind of ended my speaking career after seven or eight years of really enjoying that and having some success. But then this play took off and it was one of those opportunities where I found myself going, okay, do I leave? Do I risk this and leave what I've been doing, which is going so well, or do I stay where I am? And you realize, of course, we, we all realize that as you get older, you realize even more that you only get one shot <laughs> this life. And when it's over, it's over and, uh, and you never know what's going to happen. And it just seemed to be such a great opportunity with the play that, that we took it, which turned out to be a very fruitful thing. We were in the West End of London for months and that's really been a wonderful thing. So that's another reinvention of myself through the years. And again, it's something that happened to me. It was unique to me. When I tell you about the success of this play and there are some others that followed as well, it sounds like, oh, well, you know, this guy, everything he's done has just worked out beautifully. I mean, what's the big deal? My life isn't that way. Well, my life isn't either. Every bit of it has been, the work has never ended. I mean, it's it's just uh, for 40 years now, it's been hard, but really wonderful work because I feel like as difficult as it's been and, and as much time and energy as it's taken and, and creativity uh, on my part, it's been I really do feel it's what I was created to do. It's what gives me the most joy. I look back now over 43 years and even some really hard times and some dry times, I wouldn't change them for anything because they have allowed me to do what I love doing. 
So your middle name is not Midas. Oh no, no, <laughs> definitely not. Definitely not. No. And it's funny when yeah. When you were telling me the story of that play, I was thinking um that the name might have been the cart before the horse. Yeah. As the title. Yeah. Um, right. yeah. <laughs> and it really taps into that, uh, the Parkinson's law, where you get things done according to the time schedule that you set up. So I think that's a brilliant use of one of those natural laws. And it obviously created a bit of success. But it seems like you're you're running, but you also like stop and you, you realize these opportunities along the way and you don't stop running. You just kind of run in that direction. And then you see something else and, you know, you run in the other direction. It's like, constantly running, but you're choosing these different paths along the way. Yeah. As a result of uh, the success with Triple Espresso, I had a producer say to me, who saw me doing my speaking, he said, I enjoyed your talk so much. Have you ever thought about doing a, a version of that as a theater piece, as a solo theater piece? And I said, well, no, I never have. He says, well, you should. And I didn't. Um, I just, I, you know, well, thank you very much. That's nice. So I, I didn't give it much thought. And he kept coming back to me and saying, you need to do that. This is really good. You need to do that. So I did that. Now, listen, I actually won some awards for this piece. Once again, it sounds like I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm maybe trying to lift myself up. I'm really not. You can just, e- just email it to me real quick and then I'll say it. So it's not as bad. <laughs> I, I have won two awards in my life. I'm looking at one here at my desk and I'm going to reach and get it here. It says second place Cactus Kid Accordion Studio, <laughs> 1961, little gold award. Okay. And, and then my play, which ended up being called That Wonder Boy, won top honors at the United Solo Theater Festival, which is the largest solo theater festival in the world in Manhattan, 700 shows. And, and um, I, once again, I won an award in 1961. I had not been recognized with any sort of an award ever. I just always, but I had work, which is much better than awards, by the way. And uh, I was so surprised to win the top three awards at that festival. But once again, it was an opportunity. It was somebody coming to me and saying, have you ever thought about doing this? And I grabbed that opportunity and and interrogated it and ended up going, yeah, I've, I've got a play here that's, that has some life. Now, that's a good story. But the tough part of that story is that the theater world being what it is, I understand how difficult speakers starting out. I understand how difficult it is to go, yeah, I'm listening to this guy's story, but it's nothing like mine. And I'm having a real hard time getting things going here. I know how difficult that is because my play, which two years ago in 2015, two years ago right now, won these top awards at the largest solo theater festival in the world. I've not been able to do it since. Because it requires so much money to put a show in a theater and producers to come alongside and all these other people have to come along to make things possible. And the money has just not been there, especially during tough times economically. So I don't mean for me personally, but I mean for our whole culture. So, And for me personally, too, I might add. But um, so, yeah, it is hard work. It, it really does. It truly does never end. You just keep working at it. But you do it because it's what you love and it's because it's what you're made to do. Well, let's unpack some of the method behind the madness that happens yeah. and give some of our listeners your best tips of advice for the upcomers, the people who are sitting there going, wow, um, I'm inspired and I want to continue. I want to have a 40-year you know, employment as a performer. But what are some of the tactics? What are some of the skills if you were to leave them uh, behind in a treasure box and you wanted somebody to find them, the tactical methodologies that you're using uh, could be the comedy elements, but that how does that work and things like that? So how 
is it that we can unpack some of the parts of your success from a technique perspective? Yeah. Let's go right underneath that, if we can, to the foundation of what makes it all happen. And that, again, is creativity. And I believe there's two ways to think about creativity. One is to think about creativity as a gift. And it is, and as much as it's woven into our very genes, we were born with it. But we weren't born creative. What we were born with is a capacity and a desire to experience creativity. Any speaker, anybody starting out trying to find their way, I think if they can tap in to creativity, that's the best thing that they can do because they need to, as a speaker, you don't want to be like anybody else. Now, your style may resemble somebody else's. That's one thing. But you want to be uniquely yourself. You want your stories. You want the sense of who the speaker is to be uniquely you, nobody else. That's what's going to set you apart. You are the only you. There is nobody else who speaks like you do, who stands like you, gestures like you, when you find out what that is and when you discover who that is. And particularly in terms of the story that you're telling, when you're speaking, you know, you're going to have to give information, but nobody's going to want to stand, sit and listen to you give information very long. You're going to need to weave this into a story somehow. And that story should be your story. I believe that's the most powerful thing that you can do. So shall we call that your the, the speaker snowflake theory? Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you are your own speaker snowflake, yep. completely individual. It's your own voice. It's your own story. You've got to give information, but you've got to package it in a way that's entertaining. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's where I think you need to recognize the other part of creativity. It's not only a gift. Creativity is a craft that can be mastered. And the way that you master it is the way you master any craft, or another word would be skill. You master it by practicing the fundamentals of that craft or of that skill or of that process. And those fundamentals are something that need to become for us. I This is, I think, the most important thing I can give to any of your listeners or anybody for that matter, even if they're not speakers or even if they're not in the arts. Creativity needs to become a habit for us. And as you probably heard, Ryan, habits, I mean, I've heard this my whole life. You can form a new habit in three weeks. I've heard that since I, I was a child. And I think it's people said it because it, they just recognize that, yep, I've been doing this about three weeks. Feels like a habit now. Where neuroscience has now proven that that's actually true. By practicing something, by intently focusing on something, five to 16 minutes a day, For three weeks, you actually form a new neural pathway that did not exist three weeks earlier. And they actually can see it with pictures. They can identify it by with the brain scans that they do. That's not a strong habit, by the way. It'll take another couple cycles. So it gets up to two or three months before it's a strong habit. But we need to develop a strong habit of creativity. And we do that by practicing these three fundamentals. And here they are. I've put them in an acronym to make it easy to hear. I say, this is how you get, G-I-T, your masters of creativity. Number one, you grab anything that grabs you emotionally, meaning as you go through a day and you see things, and by the way, I don't mean motions that make you laugh out loud. I do mean that, but not just to make you laugh out loud or not just to make you cry, but anything in between or off to the side, all of your emotions, anything that grabs you emotionally, you grab it back. And when I say grab it, I mean you write it down or more likely for in the modern day, we speak it into our phones and a recorder so we are onto our notepad there so that we have it. Just a sentence. 
I saw that the lady with the little girl on the street today, and this happened, boom, one, one or two sentences, got it. Okay. You grab it. Then you interrogate that. So you have this growing list of things that you're grabbing every day. So every day you grab one thing, five things, 10 things, and just speak it in. Now, these are not ideas, by the way. They're just thoughts that you're grabbing. Experiences, memory, it might be a memory that happens. It's just a thought, and you just write it down. Then you interrogate it, which is to say, you say, okay, I'm a young young speaker. I'm trying to put together talks. I'm looking at this list of things I've grabbed in the last two or three weeks or the last year. Long list of things. I did this today, by the way, Ryan. I, I went through mine again. I do it every every week for sure. And you go through that list, and one or two of those things will jump out at you. You'll be attracted to them again. And so you look at that thing that you grabbed, that thought that you grabbed, saw the lady on the street with a little girl, and then you interrogate it. You say, why do you keep grabbing me? How could I use you? Are you a story in my book? If you're an artist, are you a painting that I should be painting? Are you a character in my book? Are you an illustration? And this is where it would really tie into to speakers. Are you an illustration I should be using? And as you interrogate, you might not get it the first times or the 10th time. I've actually had some things in my list of things I've been that I grabbed for 20 years. I'm not exaggerating, 20 years. Wow. And they now, one of the pieces is a piece that's requested all the time from people. In fact, I get hired because people say, can you come and do that 10 minutes? Yes, I can do that. So you keep going back and you, you grab, then you interrogate it. How can I use you? What might you be? And then this is a wonderful moment. And every creative person, every artist knows this, every writer. And by the way, that's what who you are, folks. You, if you're a speaker, you are a writer. Every writer knows this moment which they often describe as the aha moment. That's the moment when the thought that you grabbed becomes the idea you can do something with. Thoughts are just there. They're not actionable. But when a thought becomes an idea, now it's actionable. I can use you as an illustration. Let's say that's what it is. I know how I can use that as an illustration. And you'll be so surprised, folks, to see that very often... Those things that you've been going back and interrogating, they make themselves known to you. The truth becomes known just when you need it for a new talk or a new presentation that you're doing. It's like, there it is. I can't believe it. There it is. It's so exciting. Then T is for transform. You take that idea you have and you transform it into whatever it's supposed to be. So if it's an illustration, for example, in my case, I would then, I'd think it through, I might outline it, and then I would actually manuscript it. I would type it out in text in, in a word program, and I would work with the language so that it sounds like I speak, and I would get it the way I want it to sound, and, and I would read it and read And normally, by the time I finish something like that, going through it and going back and rereading it and editing and rereading it and doing it again and speaking out loud, it's memorized. I could pop it right into a talk and have it word for word because it will have taken several hours to do that, going back and writing it. So you grab, you interrogate, and you transform. I believe, Ryan, I believe that is the creative process. And when I've, um, uh, as you know, I have this course, Mastering the Craft of Creativity Online, which, which we can talk about just briefly at the end. But when uh, in that course, I interviewed 20 creative people from one of the top conductors, um, maestros in the country, one of the top drummers in the country, 
artists, uh, I mean, painters, songwriters, uh, just all kinds of creative people. I interviewed them. And in the process, I said, well, here's what I want you. I'd like to talk to you about this. And I explained this grabbing, interrogating, and transforming. And to a person, I saw their eyes just widen, go wide open of, oh my gosh, that's what I've that's what I've been doing. I wish I had known this 20 years ago. I could have been more intentional about it because a lot of people are creative just intuitively and that's fine, but it only takes you so far. And the problem is if, if you hit the wall, you often can't figure out how to get around it because you're just stuck. I don't know what to do. But if you know the process of grabbing and interrogating and transforming that that's what creativity is, then you just keep going back to that list. Keep interrogating, keep interrogating, keep your eyes wide open. And also, as you do this process, working on it every day, as you're trying to be aware of things that are grabbing you emotionally, the first couple of days, you might realize nothing grabbed me emotionally. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't feel anything today. But as you keep working at it, you go, oh, there it is. There's a little tug. I felt that a little bit. I don't know what this means, but I'll put this, I'll put this uh, thought down. And you put it and you write it down. And some of them end, uh, end up being thrown away, but lots and lots of them come back to be really great ideas that can be transformed into something really useful to you in your career. Yeah, I mean, if you could see my eyes right now, they're they're lit up. I mean, I'm ginger, so I'm always usually pretty sparkly. But it's interesting because this is something that I'm identifying as, as a tactic I'm using without realizing it. So absolutely. If, if you're creative, Ryan, you're using this technique. You yeah. Bet. So, I mean, every day I do a stick figure drawing and I've been doing it for years and I initially was using other people's quotes, but I actually just ran out of quotes. I just couldn't find short quotes to illustrate. And so out of necessity, I needed to have some sort of process to come up with a quote. And people are like, how do you come up with a quote every day? I literally, anything that grabs my attention, I'll jot it down in my phone, in my notes, and I'll sit there and I'll look at it, this whole interrogation process. What did that mean? And how can I summarize it in like four to five words? Because I like just fewer words so the illustration speaks. And then it totally transforms into a stick figure. And then I use those in my presentations and they are illustrations figuratively and literally. Yep. But yeah, this is a this is a definitely a useful topic to then be tactical about it to create that habit. And on the habits, my karate instructor always used to say, you need to do this move for 21 days. Yes, right. And I'm just doing the math. I'm like, wait, seven times three, that's three weeks. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. So yeah, 21 day rule is something I grew up with and I didn't equivalent it to, you know, three weeks, but this idea of repetition is so key, and, and I love this idea that creativity is something that can be learned and honed in on as a skill because some people, I think, maybe don't feel that creative energy or juice maybe because it's they, they don't get it, right? They don't get it. Well, right. <laughs> if you're not doing it, you're not feeling it. I mean, you're really not. You need to be about it. The process itself, by practicing the process, you get better at it. It becomes natural. It becomes a habit, and then it becomes much easier to do, and, and you're better at it, so it's, it's more fun. Just a quick story. I recently heard a TED talk by Sting, the uh, singer. Okay. And, um, this guy's one has been nominated 34, 35 times for Grammys. He's won 17 Grammys. He's one of the most popular, successful artists ever, musical artists. And he said that he had an eight year dry spell where he wow. did not write one song. Eight years. He didn't write a song. And I found myself, well, how's that even possible? And he said, he, he said, I wanted to write a song. He said, I couldn't. I could not. I was completely dry. I had nothing left. I couldn't write. And then he phrased it by saying, my muse had gone away. 
Mm. And I listened to that and I thought to myself, after I listened to the whole talk, I went, I thought, no, Sting, your muse didn't, there's no muse. You just don't get it. You didn't get it. You, don't <laughs> you get didn't. It. I know. And I, I would, oh, I would love to be able to talk to Sting, not to hold anything over him, but I'd love to talk to him about this because it was so clear to me that he just, he didn't understand the process. He hit a wall and he didn't know how to get out of it. Now he did get out of it. And listen to this, Ryan, this is so exciting. The way he got out of it is he heard somebody speaking in the dialect that he grew up with in Newcastle in the UK. And it's a shipbuilding town. And all of the people spoke in this Newcastle dialect. He heard somebody speaking in that dialect and it caught his ear. And that got him just thinking about little ditties, little musical ditties that he used to hear as a kid. And he wrote a couple similar ditties in that dialect. He had never, ever in his career ever written a song in the dialect of his own people. But he did. He wrote a simple little ditty, a sea shanty thing. And then he wrote another one and another one. And then he started imagining characters. And so what he was doing is he was going back. He heard that dialect. It grabbed him. He grabbed it back. He said, what can I do with you? I'll write a little ditty. And he wrote a little ditty with this thing. And that eventually transformed into his Broadway play, which is now in the West End of London, called The Last Ship, which will play now for the next hundred years, probably. So that's the process. He stumbled upon it by accident. I don't think he still knows what he did, but he grabbed and he interrogated and he transformed. That got him out of that eight-year dry spell. Well, here, here's a Twitter challenge for everybody because I know you're on Twitter. You're at Bob Stromberg, S-T-R-O-M-B-E-R-G, mm-hmm. and I'm at Ryan Folland. And my challenge to anybody who has a one, two, or three degree connection with Sting Let's get Bob connected with Sting so they can talk about how he did or didn't get it. <laughs> Boy, that'd be fun. That would really be fun. Yeah. I bet you we can make it happen. There are, you know, there's what, seven or six degrees of Kevin Bacon. There's got to be like at least six or seven degrees of Sting. So we'll <laughs> make right. that happen for you. <laughs> <laughs> so let's transition into how you've been able to turn this four decades into an actual career. Because a lot of people can maybe get up on stage and they can be a comedian and they can be a speaker, but they can be, financially speaking, an unsuccessful comedian, an unsuccessful speaker and still be passionate and still have amazing content. For you, how have you been able to support your family with being a performer? Boy, I feel so blessed that I have been able to do it very well. And again, I just shared that story about how I got started doing school assembly programs. That took only three weeks to, for me to run into that one guy, that one principal. And the next year I did 475 school assembly programs. Now that's three a day, every day of the school year, pretty much. Now, when I go back and I, I wish I had the number right here, I'd tell you, but I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was a Looking back at 1977 dollars, it was a pitifully small amount of money, but it wasn't at that time. It was quite good at that time. But now I look and I go, how do we ever live on? (laughs) I don't know if it was 2000 or something. I don't know. It was a really small amount of money. But anyway, that got me going. And I, I was just very, very fortunate to do that. And then as I continued to follow other things that I was grabbing along the way, I people say, hey, can you speak at our conference? Can you speak at a retreat on the weekend? Can you come and do this? Can you do our family night here? Yes, I can do that. And and all of those things kind of came together. And then I get an opportunity to do I mean, the story is be an interesting stick drawing to see all these different paths that I took. But my wife, Judy, had a, our two little babies at home. 
And I was off running around New England doing these schools every day. So I'd leave early in the morning and I'd, I would get back about dinner time, which was nice. So I'd have a time with the family, but she would, the phone would ring. And so she would pick it up and say, well, no, he's not here. He's doing, he's working here, but can I take a message? So she, by default, became my booking agent. And she ended up doing it for 17 years until our kids were uh, well, actually started before they were born. And then when, and then, uh, when they were in high school, she said to me once, she said one day, all we do is work. <laughs> we, we just work. We're just working. Mean, we're in the office downstairs in the basement of our house. We're working all day long. I always made sure that when the kids came home from school at three, I was waiting at the door for them. And they thought that dad's been standing there all day waiting for us to come home. So they didn't realize we were working all day, but we worked till three o'clock and then I was traveling, going and traveling all the time too. And she said, I don't want to miss these years with the boys, especially now as they're in high school and stuff before they, they're going to be gone for good. So she said, I really don't want to do this work anymore. And I said to her, well, I'll find an agent. And this scared me a lot because I'd, I'd heard nightmares stories about agents, but I had to do it. So a friend of mine said, you know, I am an agent and this friend of mine was quite successful. And he said, you know, he's a great guy. You'd probably really enjoy him. So I wrote to this agent in Nashville. We were living in, I think we were in New England at the time, or maybe we were in Chicago. I can't remember, but I wrote to him and I, and I said, you know, can I send you some of my stuff? I had some videotapes, some audio tapes, this kind of stuff. I can't remember exactly what the elements were back then. And he said, yeah, you can send some stuff. So I sent him some stuff. And in the package, I said, take a week to look at this stuff. And if you would like, I'd be happy to hop on a plane and come down and talk to you. Now, here's the truth. At the time, I really couldn't afford to hop on a plane because it was a like it is today. It was expensive to fly, even worse then. But I thought, if I'm going to do this, I've got to do it. I have to give it everything I have. So this agent later told me, that the one thing that made me stand out from all the other people who were sending materials to him so that he could be their agent, the one thing that stood out was the fact that I said, you know, if you're interested, let me know. I'll be there whenever you want me to come and we'll talk about it. Hmm. He said, that was the one thing. Nobody else said that. They just wanted me to look at their stuff and be impressed and call. But you said you'd come down and talk to me. So he said, uh, you were the one who stood out. And um, I went down and talked to this guy, wonderful guy. He's about, he was my age. And this, so I would have been in my forties at this point. And uh, we talked for a couple hours and he said, you know, I, I operate my business on a handshake. Do you want to do it? And I said, I, I sure do. So we shook hands and I'm, I was so excited. And he said, now I want you to meet your agent. And what? Oh no, <laughs> I thought you were going to be my agent. I didn't say that, but that's what I was thinking. <laughs> and he got on his intercom, pressed a little button. He said, Tim, come on down. And this young kid, I'm not kidding you, right out of college. I think it was, I think three or four months earlier, he had graduated from college and he came in and I was his first artist. And I was quite disappointed because I was thinking, well, I, gee, I don't want a college kid. Right. I want somebody who's done this forever, you know, but he was young and hungry and really smart and he said, we're going to make this happen and just got behind me all the way. He served me so well all these years. Tim Grable's his name, by the way. He's now has his own agency. It's called the Grable Group in Nashville. If any of you are, are bookers out there, and I don't mean just for me, but for other artists as well, you can't, you can't deal with a better agent Tim Grable is. He's just the best. And I've been with him for 25 
yeah, 27 maybe years now. Wow. And, and just had a wonderful relationship. Now, listen, I've then, I, I've recommended him to other artists who came on with him and, and they said, you know what? I was with him for a year and he didn't get me anything that I wouldn't have gotten myself. Here's the truth. It's really important for people to understand what a booking agent does. A booking agent, really what a booking agent does is answer the phone and negotiate contracts and maybe some marketing, but a booking agent isn't running all over the country trying to get you bookings. A booking agent is answering the calls that come in for you and doing the work to negotiate your fees and then take care of the details to get you to do the thing. So a lot of people misunderstand what they're supposed to be getting with a booking agent. A booking agent takes care of you, looks after you, makes sure that you're okay and that he keeps you and keeps the client happy. That's the nature of that work. But people misunderstand that. They think, oh, I'm going to go on with this agent. I'm going to be working. I'm going to be working like crazy. Well, it takes time. Everything takes time. And if you're willing to serve a booking agent the way and the booking agent is willing to serve you, that relationship can actually work well. So I don't know if that's helpful or not. I, I, no, that is because what, what I think is unique is, is one, the, the clear conception of what an agent or a booking agent does. That They're not out there pounding the pavement as much as they're dealing with sort of the, the flow that happens. And you're still marketing, you're still working, and you're, you're making it work together. And I, I'm convinced even after all these years and even well into the internet age as we are now, 10 years into it really big time, and I don't mean just we, I mean as a culture that we are, I'm still convinced that word of mouth is the very best marketing that there is out there, period. So if you don't have an agent, I think it's really important that you seek opportunities yourself, as you will continue to do for 40 years, by the way. You seek opportunities yourself to speak wherever you can. And that you serve those people you are speaking with there. You make sure that you you really are a servant to them. That you make sure that they have the materials that they need to have ahead of time. You make sure if you said that you're going to adapt your talk specifically to their company or to their organization, make sure that you do. Make sure you know who your audience is. Make sure you know how to dress. I mean, don't come in a suit if uh, people are there for the picnic in their sandals and and vice versa. Don't come in your jeans if people are are in three-piece suits. But, and incidentally, I've discovered that generally business casual, I'm talking about for a man now with a coat and uh, what do you call them? Um, Jeans. (laughs) Well, jeans are the next step up, but it would, or dockers kind of stuff or whatever, that kind of look, or even nice dress jeans. If you're in doubt, that look seems to work almost everywhere. Our culture has become extremely casual in the last few years, and it's important to adjust to that. But you want to know how to dress. You want to know if they ask you to do 45 minutes, then you do 45 minutes. You don't do 30. And worse yet, you don't do 60. Right, right. That's where you really get yourself into trouble. I would recommend that you get there ahead of time. Make sure that the tech stuff, you know, if you carry your own mic like I do, I have a headset mic that I use because I do I do a lot of stuff with my hands. One of the things, I make hand shadows, for example. I can't, I can't have a mic in my hand if I'm making hand shadows. So I have a headset, high quality DPA headset, it's called, that I carry with me everywhere I go. So make sure you're there, that you've got the adapters you need to plug into their equipment or whatever, so that you're, the person is bringing you in is not wondering, I don't know if he got to the hotel. I don't know if he's here yet. He said he was going to be here, but I haven't heard from him yet. Make sure they know so that they can relax. 
and then ask them for feedback afterwards. You know, just say, hey, would you mind uh, writing a short sentence or two about the ex- our experience together? Would you highlight a few things that stood out to you? And if your client ends up saying to you in a letter, I want you to know that this person was on time. He did exactly what we asked him to do. He was well prepared. He fulfilled all of our expectations. Those things carry a tremendous amount of weight. And those are all things you then use in marketing as you can put those up on the internet in your written materials and so on. And it all comes down to those fundamentals at the end of the day. Well, Bob, I love the fact that you heard a song that was a sign. You were repressed as a class clown because your dad was a principal. It inspired you to take on that class clownness on the public stage, which then you put yourself into situations where necessity created opportunity only to create, you know, 4 million ticket sales on a play that you sold before you even wrote it to continue on with your individual shows and as a family team booking until you ran out of time to book, to get an agent, to then continue (laughs) to hustle every day, even tonight. And I think that's amazing. So not only inspirational, but very foundational. And I think that those two combinations, along with the fact that you can get creativity every single day, if you make it a habit for at least 21 days, I think there's a lot of information that we're able to unpack from here today. So very much appreciated. And if someone was going to find you online or learn more about or get into your class, where would you send them? Well, first of all, let me say, Ryan, thanks for being a podcaster who actually listened. That was really great. <laughs> That's a good synopsis there. You could go to, uh, I'm I'm putting together a page just for your listeners called bobstromberg.com forward slash world. Okay. Um, and if they go there, I have a page set up for you. That, that'll connect if you wish to the rest of my website and you can look at my videos and my comedy and everything else there. But it will, it will. You'll see there, uh, there's a free multiple choice test entitled, Are You As Creative As Steve Martin? Which I understand most of your listeners probably feel they already know the answer to, (laughs) but they might be surprised. It's a fun little quiz. It only takes about two minutes to take and it's the real deal. And then also there's a free 30 minute training video there on uh, mastering the craft of creativity that we've talked about here. So they can grab that. And then also information on how to buy the whole course, Mastering the Craft of Creativity, should they choose to do that. And there's booking information for me and there's contacts to my podcast, which is called The Wide-Eyed Creative, which I'd love to have any of your listeners listen to. I'm not trying to steal uh, listeners here, but if they have time. No, podcast for podcast. It's all good. You bet they would. uh, I think they enjoy that a lot. So that's uh, bobstromberg.com forward slash world. Excellent. Well, awesome. Well, good luck tonight and good luck to continue to just crush it and smash it. And I look forward to connecting with you online and hopefully sharing the stage sometime. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. All right, Bob. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye.